Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, several of our listeners today will be familiar with a little country called Germany. I'm kidding. Germany is a huge country. As of 2017, Germany alone accounted for 28% of the economy in the EU, according to the International Monetary Fund. I'm Ben. Hey, I'm Noel. Remember that Weird Al song, The Rye or the Kaiser? Uh-huh. It was like a joke on the eye of the tiger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's all I got. You know, Weird Al is such a technically phenomenal uh, musician. Oh, yeah. Have you seen him wail on an accordion? He shreds, dude. He, he absolutely shreds. shreds. Those keys are flying everywhere. I don't know how you must go through an accordion a day. Yeah, and you know who is uh, shredding on the producer end today? Our super producer, Casey Pegram, is here in spirit and has uh, bequeathed the next few episodes to our guest super producer, J.J. Pawsway. I love that word, bequeath, man. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so, it's very princely. It makes mm -hmm. me think of giving someone an estate or a fine castle with yeah. linens and, you know, high bedposts and things like that. And everybody senses that, that gravity, the drama that comes with mm -hmm. the use of that word, such that if, you, if, you, uh, if, if you're on the street and someone asks you for a dollar or something and you say, yeah, I'll bequeath you a dollar, they'll think you're being <laughs> rude, you know, uh, because words have power. That's misuse of the word, Ben. That is gross negligence when using that word. You can't just throw around bequeath. It's like bestowing. Right. You know, there's, there has to be respect on both sides of the equation. But when bequeathing something, I think at least in modern English here in the States, the implication is that something is posthumously given to someone. I have bequeathed this in to my, my eldest will. son. Yeah, exactly. J.J. Posway. 
<laughs> JJ is uh, J- JJ's looking on. This is uh, his first time working with us on Ridiculous History. JJ, thumbs up, thumbs down. How you doing? Well, that's a strong thumbs up. Okay, we're gonna have to check back in the end. See that's why we- he was always my favorite son. <laughs> Such strong thumbs. <laughs> so. As you know, longtime listeners, our show is based here in Atlanta, Georgia, which is based here in these United States of ours. We mentioned Germany at the top because today Germany is this incredibly powerful, strong economic, uh, cultural, sociopolitical force. And this was not always the case. You see, Germany was kind of late to the game of geopolitics. By the time the 19th century came to close, uh, it was sort of an upstart in many other countries' eyes because Germany, as we know it, really coalesces in 1871 when a bunch of different provinces are unified at the end of the Franco-Prussian War. And at the time, there was this chancellor, Otto von Bismarck, and he adopted this policy he called real politic. This meant what they wanted to do through the pursuit of real politic was to kind of make Germany the go-to mediator for European affairs, such that like if France and uh, Britain have a problem, they will speak with Germany and Germany will help try to solve it. But the weird thing is, Soon after a guy named Kaiser Wilhelm II took over, the nation changed. The tone became nationalistic, militarily aggressive. And they said, you know, why be mediators when we can expand our empire into a world power? And this is where our story sort of takes place, yeah. right? Like two decades before World War I even began, uh, the Kaiser had a plan for the U.S. Yeah, the guy had a real priapism for the, uh, for the United States here. He was <laughs> not—he uh, wanted it. Mm-hmm. He wanted to flex— his uh, superiority, or in his mind, you know, what was superior. And he did not like this thing called the Monroe Doctrine, one bit, which was a thing that we adopted that established us as sort of a sort of world police almost, like um, sort of standing in the way of uh, colonization that would, you know, affect our relationship with other countries, for example, like Germany had relationships with uh, South American countries, and we wanted to kind of stem the tide of that stuff. And Wilhelm was like, who are you to say? I'm Kaiser Wilhelm. I have a golden, uh, I have a golden horned helmet. Mm-hmm. You can tell me nothing. Yeah, it's true. And this, this is weird because it was a slow burn situation way before World War I. The Kaiser thought, you know, it's in the cards for Germany and the United States to uh, come into conflict, and it's not too far down the road uh, because we had already had, as you said, Noel, there had already been some butting of heads, especially in 1889 when the two countries were fighting over control of the Samoan Islands. And Germany, as you said, uh, wanted to grow, right? We had established that it it went from real politic to what it called Weltpolitik, world politics. And so it needed to expand. But as it was trying to expand, especially in the Far East, in the Pacific theater, it also found another uh, country 
trying to rapidly expand, that being the U.S. This kind of situation is something that you can play out for yourself if you have, you know, six bucks and hours of free time. You can pick up the game Civilization. Are you aware of that? Have you ever played that? Yeah, it's sort of like The Sims or uh, Sim City, but with, you know— Countries. Countries and world events. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you run into this idea of uh, mutually conflicting expansionist goals pretty often. And the other thing is, you know how, okay, so we're pretty hesitant, and rightly so, to ascribe personal or emotional motivation to historical figures. We're not in their heads. We don't know. We only know what they wrote, or we only know what was written about them or what they said, uh, especially in the days before widespread audio-video capture. Right. We do know, however, that Kaiser Wilhelm II uh, really hated the U.S. Really? (laughs) He was like, it's corrupt, it's decadent, democracy, capitalism, it's for the birds, it's all gone to the dogs and various other animal-related figures of speech. Uh, We we know this um, through multiple, multiple different accounts, and the— Monroe Doctrine, which had been in place for a long time. Yeah, I think like half a century. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The Monroe Doctrine really, really stuck in the Kaiser's Craw. I don't know. I just wanted to say the Kaiser's Craw. It feels like maybe it's the name of a, a beach comer restaurant yeah, somewhere in Florida. Perhaps a brand of margarine. The Kaiser's Craw. The Kaiser's Craw. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know. I'm thinking Crock. It's oh, different that- than Craw. Well, we could have a whole Kaiser line, the Kaiser's Croc, the Cro- Kaiser's Craw, uh, the Kaiser's Crab. Mm-hmm. Crab dip? <laughs> the Kaiser's Crab dip. Not the Kaiser's Crabs. That's a, that's probably a medical condition. Go get it checked out. That's for sure. Uh, so so what, what happens? He's, he's mad about the Monroe Doctrine. Well, he's incensed. He's about, incensed. Yeah. He, he's thinking big, though, right? Right. Um, he uh, wanted to essentially get un fettered access to the Pacific Ocean. Um, he wanted to completely go against the Monroe Doctrine and had all of these uh, very detailed military plans in place to establish a naval base in the Caribbean, in Cuba, or possibly Puerto Rico, and then that would give them access to South America, Central America, and the Panama Canal, um, which it was hoping to take over once it was done being built. It was still in the process of being built. <laughs> it wasn't done yet. Yeah, no, he had big, big designs on the future. Um, And uh, in order to do that, he needed to deal with the United States. And there's a fantastic article uh, from Gizmodo called The Secret German Scheme to Invade America um, Before the First World War. And it outlines this story beautifully. Yes, yes. You heard the line correctly there, folks. You see, Wilhelm, while very aggressive, very bellicose, belligerent, and aggro, as we would say today. While he was all those things, he was not a nincompoop. He was not a, a dunderhead, right? He knew that there had to be some sort of uh, plan addressing the U.S. because the U.S., like any other country, would not be particularly happy with this foreign empire being in their backyard, Mm-mm. especially in what they considered already as their domain, their the— um, the place where they were hegemons. So he says to his military thinkers, he says, okay, let's let's sketch out plans for how to deal with the U.S. Do we want to offer them money? No. Do we want to uh, seek their approval for this naval base and then access to the Panama Canal? No. So let's just figure out 
how to attack and invade the United States. The U.S. is big, right? It's much larger than Germany. So we don't want to take over the U.S., but we want to force them to bargain with us. We want to get them to the point where we make them an offer they can't refuse. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts of a spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This information only came to light in 2002 uh, when some of these plans, of which there are three, you got to have options, uh, were uncovered at the German military archives in Freiburg. So why don't we start with um, Plan 1, which we will call Attack and Blockade. So um, the Naval Lieutenant Eberhard von Mante um, in 1898 uh, helped draft up this plan that would essentially um, have the German Navy sailing across the Atlantic, um, making laying waste to 
the U.S. Navy forces in the Atlantic. Um, and then there would be a targeted artillery attacks against some very key infrastructure points like the uh, Newport News Shipbuilding Center and the Norfolk Naval Shipyard um, and also uh, an area in Virginia known as the Hampton Roads area, which is another military strong point that was seen. Uh, these were seen as being the weakest points or the most sensitive spots to conquer by Lieutenant von Mante. Um, and then once, you know, they'd made quick work of the American forces, they would send uh, some folks out to parlay. Big problem with this plan, though, right? Huge problem. What's that? They didn't have any of this stuff. They didn't have enough ships to pull this stuff off. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like you said, I mean, the Kaiser wasn't an idiot, but his reach definitely exceeded his grasp in just about all of these plans. We don't want to spoil the fun yeah, yet. You're quoting some poetry. I like it there. Yeah, yeah. So, as you said, there, there are three plans. Plan one has some operational problems, right? It has some non-starters. Not just the lack of naval units on the German side, but the fact that post-Spanish-American War, the Caribbean is lousy with U.S. ships. They're all over the place. So they make another plan, plan two of three. This is the land invasion. Did they make, is the land invasion more reasonable? No. Is it, uh, Is it like a smaller scope plan? Absolutely not. It's crazier. It's even bigger. Uh, The Kaiser says, okay, so the naval stuff's not going to work out. And this is 1899. So he goes to Von Mante, as you said, and he says, this time, give me a plan, give me a scenario in which we invade New York City and Boston. We'll need, and the, the plan requires 60 warships. Remember, again, they don't have very many ships. A supply chain with 60 cargo and troop ships carrying 75,000 tons of coal, 100,000 soldiers, a huge amount of artillery, and the invasion force would have taken a little less than a month to cross the Atlantic. It's 25 days. You can you can read more about this as well with some direct quotes on AmericanHeritage.com about the German plan to evade America. The idea was that they would have this huge naval battle, and they would secure superiority over U.S. ships and naval forces, and then German troops would make an amphibious landing at Cape Cod. From there, they would go to Boston. They would fire artillery into the city. So they'd be attacking civilians here. And for the attack on New York, they would land at Sandy Hook, New Jersey, and warships would fire at the harbor uh, going through Fort Hamilton and Tompkins, and then they would go to Manhattan, and they would try. They were purposefully going to target civilians to make people panic, to make the authorities have to concentrate on controlling and saving the civilian population, as well as fighting off these uh, German forces. And then von Mante was actually kind of bullish on this one. He said, you know— Two to three battalions of infantry and just one battalion of sappers should be efficient. And a sapper is a a term for a military engineer or combat engineer. Hmm. So they'll like lay mines, they'll prepare defenses. They're also specializing in demolitions and breaching fortifications. Got it. I was not aware of this term. It's like laying siege. Essentially, doesn't it almost sound like a term of abuse or sort of like a, like a negative thing? Like you old sapper, you. <laughs> it does. It does. Because we call people that. a sap. That's true. So these two plans, 
now are collectively called Von Mante's winter correspondence. Mm. If you use the right tone, winter correspondence, it sounds like it's the name of an outdated perfume. You know what I mean? It sounds like Elizabeth Taylor's uh, new fragrance. Winter correspondence. It's very formal, though. It yeah. is. It is. It is. It's definitely not not the uh, late night perfume. Exactly. No, it's, it's like for the the formal. You know. Indeed. Uh, so this stuff, these plants, were kept active, which means they were still being considered and maybe tinkered with for a for about ten years as Berlin kept trying to expand its influence. And uh, Von Mante, we know, continued to think about this. Sure. Have we talked a little bit about Count Alfred von Schlieffen? No, not yet. Yeah, he uh, was the uh, chief of staff at the time, and he considered these plans to be a series of fool's errands, right? He thought that the idea of uh, attacking a country 3,000 miles away was possibly not the best, Idea. He thought it was a terrible idea. Yeah, he, he literally thought that it could become some kind of uh, ship show. Literally, it'd be a ship show because there's ships involved too. Um, so uh, here's the thing. We also have a guy named Admiral Tirpitz who is considered the father of the German Navy. He was all about it, but he's like a hawk, you know, which you would refer to as a war. He wanted to just like go out there and show off his new toys. He had these flotilla that they hadn't been able to deploy yet. Right. This is a great opportunity. Well, and it also could turn into more funding for the fleet. Because, see, this is a thing that happens in every military. Uh, of course, the guy who's in charge of hammers wants to find nails mm-hmm. everywhere, yeah. right? So if, if you're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, right? And this is an opportunity for the admiral to receive more funding to build more ships, which gives him more power. Right. It's like the way Trump loves those invisible planes. And Right. And He von, really wants to see them deployed. And von Schlieflin, he was still really loyal to the Kaiser. He was his boy. Yeah. So he didn't say anything. Yeah, he didn't say anything. And at one at one very crucial point history hinges on this kind of stuff folks at one crucial point he was on the verge of ordering the invasion of new york and then he stopped and he said look the problem is we we just don't have the manpower for this right uh, it, it seems like a lot of people didn't even, they got so carried away, they got so in the bubble that they didn't think of the implications of just beginning this, much less actually carrying it out. Uh, And there's a great article in The Guardian called German Archive Reveals Kaiser's Plan to Evade America by Kate Connolly, a journalist we've mentioned before on this show that breaks down some of the uh, blow-by-blow. Remember, these are just the first two plans. By 1900, uh, Wilhelm says, you know what? All right, all right, all right, all right, guys. Maybe I was getting a little hot under the collar. Maybe we can't launch an invasion force from Germany. But I still need that base in Cuba. And this leads us to plan three. Yeah, which is kind of a mashup, right? Sort of a remix of the other two that involves some some little tweaks. This was a little bit more of a sensible kind of version of the plan where I, they, they figured they'd bide, they'd bide their time. <laughs> they would establish um, a stronghold in Cuba and, uh, I don't know, it kind of depended on sort of catching the attention of the United States where it's like, oh, man, they mean business and now we're, we're, we're panicking. Um, it sort of kills the element of surprise there, but uh, there it's, we'll get into why none of these things were ever going to happen. 
tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonnevilles. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, You know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So all, all of these plans have a couple of things in common. I would say maybe two to three. First, it requires a massive buildup of German forces, right? More than they have at the time. And that buildup has to occur in secret. That's number one. Two, there can't be a big war in Europe. 
a troubled, troubled continent that is pretty famous for having, at this time, for having countries almost always at war with one another. Totally. And then lastly, they would have to catch Uncle Sam by surprise. This is tough because the U.S. would likely, through its European allies, already be very well aware of any German buildup and probably spend some manpower trying to figure out why they were building up their forces. By the first decade of the 20th century, we know that a lot of things started going wrong. Germany witnessed a shift of domestic power in Europe. France and Britain decided that they would grow up. So now they're buddies, and they started shifting their forces elsewhere. And then Germany wasn't able to get ahead of Britain in the naval arms race. At the same time, while this is all happening in Europe, concurrently, the U.S. begins to assert itself more in its sphere of influence we talked about, right? The Caribbean, Central, and South America. Uh, The U.S. demonstrates a new variation on the Monroe Doctrine, something that people would call the Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. That's Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, And it's referring to the time that the U.S. sent naval forces to intervene in the Venezuela crisis of 1902. The Roosevelt corollary essentially states this, that the U.S. will intervene in conflicts between European and Latin American countries. And this is one of those policies that made the U.S., Uh, what we call a police power. Now, just because these three plans didn't work, Noel, uh, that doesn't mean Germany ever lost its interest in, if not directly invading the U.S., seeing it invaded. It kind of held on to that one, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, as we established from the top of the show, um, Kaiser Wilhelm was just, you know, he had a real bone to pick with everything about America and was going to do whatever he could to either see it fail, invade it personally, or just badmouth it, you know, in his diaries. On a microcosmic level, it's kind of like the way some people talk about their exes. You know what I mean? It's strange. And even during World War One, just like a little more than 10 years later, Germany was talking to Mexico and saying, hey, you know what you should do? You should invade the U.S. That would be hilarious, and it would be awesome. And we can both agree that's a pretty snooty country, right? The U.S. learned about this proposal because of something called the Zimmerman Telegram. But let's let's pause for a second, because as we said, none of these plans came to fruition. But it does give us an interesting opportunity. There were several close calls, and this allows us to speculate on what might have happened. We know the Kaiser and his administration were seriously planning this, and they put a lot of thought into it. But would it have worked? What would have happened if they tried, at least? I mean, it's hard to say. We we know a little bit about what might have happened, but we also know that Germany just wasn't set up for this at all, like in terms of just sheer number of ships. And that's even if they had some kind of, you know, stronghold, fortress, impenetrable, you know, base close enough to the United States to actually amass some forces. Um, But the thing is, the U.S. probably would have known about that before they even met on the field or the, the waters of battle, right? We just have this unmesswithable Navy that you just can't, uh, you can't really go up against unless you're set up to do so. And they just weren't. Plus, it's tough 
to cross an ocean right. in that with those numbers yeah. in secret. And even if, okay, even if they had attacked, let's say they went with the plan to attack New York City and Boston, Theodore Roosevelt is president at the time. And as as we know from previous episodes on this president, he's not really a back down guy, right? He faces down rhinos, big game and so on. Not only would he probably have refused to negotiate, uh, it, it also doesn't really matter who the president was at the time. Just in the numbers of forces, the U.S. would be able to pull things together very quickly because it's a it's a home game for them. But the German forces would be at the mercy of supply chains and any assistance they could get from third parties, whatever those might be, right? Uh, also, this is an ugly truth. If it lasted for any long amount of time or met with any modicum of success um, in, in any fashion, then it's quite possible that a lot of German-Americans would have been discriminated against maybe even placed in camps the way Japanese Americans were during World War II. It's very good that this didn't happen. It's one of those close calls. Just from from multiple angles, it's very difficult to physically invade the U.S. Uh, because of the rise in information technology and what we call asymmetrical warfare, uh, the best and most popular way to invade the United States now from is, within. is from within uh, through through telecommunications, right. right? And through, you know, bots, things like that, to to mess with the mind, to gaslight the nation rather than to attack its harbors physically. Uh, and that's that's our story. If if Kaiser Wilhelm II had Twitter, who knows what would be happening right now? Oh, he would be tweeting up storms, I guarantee. Don't you think? I believe so. The guy seemed to really like to hear himself talk. He was also a big fan of, of wiener dogs. Did you know that, Ben? Yeah. Dachshunds. Uh, they're called uh, death tubes for badgers <laughs> and other boring animals. That's right. Um, he actually was eventually exiled from Germany uh, because he was responsible. I mean, this kind of blustery nature that he had um, was responsible for steering Germany into the First World War. They ended up being disastrously defeated in 1918, and um, he was kind of seen as the uh, the scapegoat, the fall guy for that, and he was because he, he single-handedly pushed uh, the country into that, um, but he was actually allowed to escape being charged with war crimes for a lot of the German atrocities and was eventually exiled to Holland where he lived in a, you know, a, a modest castle called Hus Dorn, um, where he kept several dachshunds. Um, he had Waddle, Hexel, and Senta. Um, and he had a few others as well and had five of them buried at this uh, this modest castle where he lived in exile. Um, and those are the most famous ones that I mentioned the names of. And Senta was always with him when he was uh, during, during the war. And that is uh, what earned that creature uh, an actual like a headstone with a with a very uh, sentimental um, dedication. He also reminds me of the Prussian king, uh, Frederick Wilhelm I of Prussia, in that he had he had this weird military. I hesitate to use the word, but he had a military fetish, especially for uniforms. He was obsessed with them. Apparently, he thought dressing gowns were for wimps and milk toast types. But he himself had more than 400 military uniforms. He was known to ha have them for every occasion, 
He would have uniforms for going to parties, uniforms for eating out, uh, some informal uniforms when he's just kind of doing his version of Netflix and chill at home. He had uniforms to greet other uniformed people. And he also did really, we're not joking at the beginning there, he did have a helmet of solid gold. And when he was in formal receptions, he would change his wardrobe like five or six times in one night. And uh, like, here's how, here's how specific and strange it was. And picture this description with a, a bevy of, of wiener dogs or badger death tubes running around his ankles. Whenever he ate plum pudding, he insisted on dressing as a British admiral. He also wanted to design his army's uniforms but they were pretty horrible designs. Like, they didn't really fit the soldiers. Uh, they, you couldn't move around in them. They itched in the summer. They weren't warm in the winter. But uh, the, the big daddy of the army liked their style. So a lot of us listening to today's episode are wondering about the timing. Kaiser Wilhelm II was born in 1859 on the 27th of January. And he passed away on June 4th, 1941. He was the last German emperor and king of Prussia. However, if you, if you notice the timeline there, he was alive while Adolf Hitler was alive. You know, after he'd steered Germany into World War I and Germany was defeated in 1918 and he was exiled in Holland, as, as I believe you mentioned earlier, Noel. Sure. Yeah, he lived in that he lived in that small castle but he kept his eyes on germany he was writing his memoirs and blaming the first world war on everyone except for one guy yeah himself yep. and, oh boy yeah and in 1940 he wrote a really weird telegram to adolf hitler and said congratulations you have won using my troops and he was thinking he was like all right as a good german Hitler's going to restore my throne, oh, right? Yeah. Uh-huh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, Hitler already was was on record as having as not liking right. Wilhelm at all. Right. He turned him down. He said nope and didn't give him a soft pass. Really just snubbed him. Kaiser was mad and he said, "Okay, don't send my body back to Germany until the monarchy and the real rule of law is restored." And he said, "And also no Nazi stuff at my funeral." Yeah, they 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 did not um, honor those wishes whatsoever. Um, his uh, his estate was absolutely covered with swastikas. Yeah, and there there ends the story of Kaiser Wilhelm II's ill fated plan to invade the United States. He did get a little bit of a bone thrown to him. Literally, his his own bones uh, were left there in a mausoleum um, in Holland rather than returned back to Germany. So he got a little something that he wanted. I guess so, yeah. But look, if you look at the list of stuff this yeah, guy wanted. Know, he wanted a lot. He wanted a lot. He really did. And uh, didn't have too much reciprocation. I think it was just so focused on expanding his empire that he went a little bit into Mad King territory. Absolutely. That's the thing I always wonder about these kinds of monarchs. Like, is it all, it's all just for their own glory. Like, it's not even, like, even these plans were so poorly thought out. They weren't realistic to achieve. It was obviously just he was just bluster and just wanting to kind of make himself out to be some sort of, you know, military genius when his own military advisors were like, nah, man, this is this is not going to work. 
He wanted to be a conquering king. And the strange thing about conquering kings or any kind of conquering despot, expansionist-oriented leader, is that often they're, they're piss-poor maintainers of a kingdom, an empire, or a country. You know, they spend so much time focusing on growing stuff that they don't support the people who already lived there, who are already part of their kingdom, their empire, or their country. Yeah, that feels like tales old as time. It's almost like, you know, they're the least of, of their concern. And so we draw a close to today's episode, but not the show. As we said at the beginning, uh, let's check back in with our guest super producer, JJ. JJ, we still thumbs up or thumbs down? Oh, thumbs up. Okay. You're not thumbs upping the Kaiser's plan, are you? I am not thumbs upping the Kaiser's plan. Okay. Not into that. Great. <laughs> That's JJ. Uh, so thank you. So thanks so much, man. Seriously, for, for joining us on today's episode. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Casey Pegram. Thanks to Alex Williams, who composed our theme. Um, research associate Gabe Luzier and uh, Ryan Barish. Um, Christopher Hasiotis here in spirit, as always. Thanks, of course, to Eve's Jeffcoat, uh, who recently finally appeared on an episode of our show. Thanks for classing it up there, Eve's. Uh, and I don't want to say thanks to the Kaiser, but I will say uh, thanks to everyone in the government at that time who kept him from trying to invade the U.S. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hello! Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.